0: A Podcast One production.
1: I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. In this episode, I'm at Crown Towers in Melbourne during race week for the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. I love that event. The Phillip Island race is as legendary for the classic old school style layout that is a favourite among the riders as it is for the unforgettable races won by Aussies over the years that have helped cement its place on the MotoGP calendar. Icons like Wayne Gardner, Casey Stoner and Mick Doohan. Mighty Mick overcame serious injury on the road to the top and has taken many of the tenacious attributes he became famous for on track to the boardroom and become a business success story in post-Grand Prix life. The journey to the top began simply by trying to keep up with family. The bike was a bloody uh,
0: a silly little don't even know what I don't know what uh, what engine it had on it but uh, but it had a uh, it was a, a, a what they call a, a box frame with a lawnmower engine in it so like real small little wheels basically um, the basic beginnings of a motorcycle and then I moved on to a, a little Honda mr50 about, uh, in about in about 1970 three or four so but you know the the little box frame thing was before that and then started racing probably around um, in 1974 with that MR50 so about nine years old. Were you scared to
1: twist the wrist or were you the tearaway trying to keep up with family that were on bikes as well?
0: No absolutely you know I had two older brothers uh, riding so you know being the younger one trying to trying to keep up and keep them in sight initially but you know I, I enjoyed it I had you know made a few mistakes as you do when you're a kid trying to find out the uh, your limits at that point in time but, but I enjoyed it straight away I really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the bikes and, um, and you know racing Then is something all three of us were doing sort of week in week out really.
1: Road racing for you the debut happened I think at Surface Paradise in 84 Yamaha RZ350, that track's gone now sadly, what are your recollections of, of that and how did the transition to, to circuit racing come about was that always part of the, the ambition for you, part of the want? no it wasn't but yeah with surface
0: paradise is a shame really you know it's now a uh, now a housing estate that um, uh, would have been ideal for for a lot of different events really you know well for everything from the supercars would race up there to different events right in the center of town now but um, but that's the way things go but um, I was really mainly still in dirt bikes. I didn't have much of an idea of road racing or, or you know, did, didn't think it would be that exciting, to be honest. And uh, uh, a guy that I used to race with on, on uh, when I was younger with dirt bikes borrowed my... Um, I had an RZ350 production bike at, at that time and um, um, along with, uh, with a dirt bike... And um, he took it for a ride and come back with it all bent. I didn't have enough money to fix it, so a guy, <laughs> a, guy uh, a guy I knew from when I used to race, at a, a wrecking yard. The Gold Coast bike wreckers, Bob Cowley offered to fix it for nothing if I did a race on it so I thought that sounded like a fair deal for me so so I did a race for it at Surface Paradise and uh, and I did well I can't remember, I think I finished second against there was people like Terry Pavel, Paviel I think his name was um, I, I, I know his name but I, the pronunciation of <laughs> the name I'm not sure uh, uh, is, is correct but um, he was a Kiwi and went um, he was the Australian champion in the 250 class at that time so he thought... Um, he thought I did okay, mentioned it to Bob Cowley and then when I went in to see Bob the next time, um, a few weeks later Bob had actually said, what am I interested in doing, racing bikes or or just messing around, being a hooligan like I was doing and uh, and I, I basically said to him, if you give me a hobby you know, and, and from there on in he'd organised a, 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 a Suzuki 250 production bike and basically things just went on from there
1: How important then, you mentioned the 250 how important were those production bikes and then even when you went into You know, thousand cc production superbikes. How important were they for the skill set? Ultimately, for you? Look,
0: at at that point in time, they were hugely uh, important. But you know, you don't really think anything of it at the time. And that's all we were racing here in Australia. Production bikes were were the main game, and um, superbike, as far as a series, hasn't hadn't even been was was thought about. But it didn't start till '98. So um, you know, although Australia was. Uh, there was a endurance championship and the odd um, super bike race so to speak but it was mainly all production bike racing but the 250 you know because of the, the entry level I guess uh, the cost in, uh, the cost for, um, to, to enter was fairly cheap it was fairly big fields and it was quite competitive and you know sort of semi manufacturer support and uh, quite good racing so you know it was it was pretty cut and thrust and uh, you know everyone from a whole bunch of different riders that comes through that series and and then basically moved on, but Rob, you know, in 1987 I was still racing a a, a, a 250 production bike, and an 88 I'm on a super bike, 89 I'm on a 500. So, so it um, you know really as far as a. As a as a a breeding ground, I guess, um, and and honing skills, it it went a long way. You know, didn't didn't really sort of prepare me for a 500, but still, you know, gave you the basic skill set you
1: needed. (laughs) How did you get a foot in the door with the the 500s? I mean, the record book talks about your your first GP being Japan '89, but what about the first ride? How did the door open? And and how? awesome was it to ride one of those things back then or daunting for, for that matter
0: the first time i went to japan was 87 and um it um uh, an invite from a, a, a big hot a yamaha dealer up there in fact and, and i was riding with yamaha here in uh, in australia and the production bikes and did quite well up there and uh so uh, and then um from the uh, from the 87 doing doing a few things McGee then left to go to the 500 uh MotoGP in 88 and I basically replaced his um his ride here in Australia in the Marlborough Yamaha dealer team and I I went well from the outset won the first race at Sandown and it was the Australian Endurance Championship because every race I think there was two one-hour races each each weekend and uh and I won the first race, and and uh, Barry Sheen had moved to the, to Australia that year or the year before, and uh, was on t- was doing the TV commentary, and uh, and he basically put a word in for a few guys in, in back in Europe, and said that you know the young some young guy, which you know being an old guy now, but back then that you know being 22 was young, <laughs> but is um, going quite well. So equally with that. And the Superbike Series started the same year. And I did two Superbike races and won three out of the four of the races. And uh, so that had the attention with Wayne Gardner also winning in 87. McGee going there in 88, being Moto MotoGP. And both of them doing well. Sort of they were looking down here in Australia, so I was sort of in the right spot at the right time, doing well. I, I had uh, I had signed a letter of intent through Sheeney with Suzuki uh, through Barry Sheen for a... Uh, You know, it was a good number, but, you know, a number that I didn't think, um... You know, I thought it was great, and he thought it was great, but you know, the, the things had moved on, in only a short period of time from when he was riding, and and you know, it had a Suzuki four wheel drive as part of the part of the deal, you know, which I didn't have a car at the time, so I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, long and short, uh, you know, the next minute I've got the Honda, Yamaha, everyone wanting to wanting to have me ride their bike. So the first time I rode the bike to answer the question was was a was a Yamaha at their test circuit um, in Hamamatsu, which is a pretty daunting test circuit to be honest. It's fast and it's cut through the hills, you know, with the you know escarpments and you know no runoff in a lot of places, and but fast turns and. and I went quite well actually. Uh, I, I think I went quicker than. Um, well, I know I went quicker than what the lap record was but then uh, but then I crashed coming out of the chicane just with the with the unforgivingness of the um, of the 500 basically just loaded it up with too much gas before it had, uh, you know loaded it up coming out of a turn and just the learning things with a 250 production bike you could just gas it up with the 500 there was no way knowing you could do that you had to sort of let the let the uh, the, the wheels car- <laughs> catch up with the throttle essentially because the acceleration was good but if you loaded it with too much fuel it'd, it'd, it'd want to burn that fuel and it just turned the back wheel into a, into a spinning machine So and you couldn't catch it and, then, and I hadn't learnt at that point in time to, to use the clutch to get, get rid of the wheel spin because <laughs> rolling out of the throttle wouldn't work once it had a gut full of fuel so, so I crashed, hurt myself fairly, fairly, uh, fairly well and then hobbled into Honda the next day to check out their facility at HRC and, and uh, a day or two later or in Mount Fuji, I was racing with Yamaha. I, I think I still won the race, um, at, uh, but I'd signed for Honda on the in the back of a little <laughs> high ice van or something
1: <laughs> behind the pits uh, of the Yamaha pit. You mentioned before about uh, Kevin McGee. I mean, when you were on the grid of that first GP in um in 89 mega names back then mate Freddie Spencer Kevin Schwantz, Wayne Rainey Eddie Lawson you, you mentioned their fellow Aussies Wayne Gardner and and McGee you've never struck me as the kind to be overawed by by people like that but when you got there was there a sense of you know far out this is the big league and and how did you feel about that
0: absolutely um you know I think I've mentioned before I didn't really have much of an idea of road racing um had all before I got into it so I, I didn't really it never excited me I didn't think it'd be that exciting you know motocross dirt track was all what I was interested in so I didn't really have much of a following until I started road racing myself but didn't really understand the level of these guys were competing at and you know in the national races here in Australia you know I was winning and winning relatively easy and you know and then I'd done superbike and won those things relatively easily and, um, and then I was put on a 500, which was one, as I say, it slapped me down as soon as I thought I was going well, just to wake me up, and then um, and then uh, hop in a race with those guys, and the depth of the field, you know, even back then, you know, you've got everyone, everyone like myself from different nations <laughs> in there racing, and with, with experience, and things they were doing with the bikes, I was... I was like, "Wow, I don't know whether I can actually do these type of things." So you know, they're pretty impressive. You know, you could you could sort of keep them keep them um, inside for a, for a lap or two, and then they just slowly disappear. You know, <laughs> and uh, so it really took another level to push myself to try and to stay with them. But but it was a daunting prospect, and um, to to to. To come come back to Australia with uh, with my tail between my legs and put my hand up and just go back. Well, I know I can ride a super bike, and I knew that actually when I'd, I'd test, I'd be on the 589 and I'd go and test for the eight hour, and I'd be quick or quicker than those guys on those bikes. So that that really convinced me, and and and, and, and it drove home the fact that yeah, I can I can um, I can ride the bike. <laughs> it's just I can't ride one of those things. So um, so I just need to sort of focus in on the areas where I'm weak and and really that's what I did and um you know be, be towards the end of 89 I felt like I was getting on top of the bike you know especially after a, uh, I'd lost my finger at the Suzuka 8 hour in 89 and that gave me time to reflect on what I need to be doing now I need to prepare myself a little bit better I came back for the race in 89 in uh, the final race I should say in 89 um in Brazil and um can't remember the one, two, three, but it was uh, Swans, Rainey, Blawson and myself. It could have been some other way around, but I know I didn't. I was in fourth. so <laughs> And that felt, you know, OK, well, you know, things are, things are starting to progress. And um, then the off-season in testing all went my way and the Japanese started to follow my my lead with development. So that helped immensely. And, um, and from there on in, it started to really things started falling my way but back back in those days also there was there was different levels of uh, number one bike number two bike and also levels in tires mm. so the the number one riders in each factory team would get level one tires and the rest of the rest of the field would have to qualify into a certain position to be able to get one of those tires for qualifying for one one session in qualifying so so things have leveled out a bit since that since those days but um but um, really, we come towards the um, you know the, the middle of uh, the middle of 1990. The Japanese were on my side and recognised that the development um, uh, direction of what I was taking the bike was a, was the right way. Um, And equally, again, I'd threatened to go and sign for for Suzuki. I didn't actually finish off. I ended up getting out of the Suzuki LOI, saying that I had some superstition and seen myself crash and hurt myself on a Suzuki. (laughs) I got out of that. So anyway, they were back wanting to sign me again for the end of 1990. um, So I used that to get Honda to um, bump me up to level one equipment. And pretty much from that from that race on, I started winning, and so then I knew, okay, well I can ride these things, and uh, you know I won that race in in Hungary, and then the next race was here in Phillip Island, I nearly won that, and uh, Wayne Gardner just uh, just pipped me in the end, you know, so so. So from there on in, things just really started heading my way.
1: You were responsible for, you know, a good chunk of the, the success story that is the NSR five hundred. In, in bike racing terms, fans, you know, still hold that bike in in really high esteem today. It changed a lot. You finessed it a lot from, I guess, the time you first started riding it to when you ended your career. But what was the early version like to to ride, and how did you manhandle the thing?
0: Uh, it was scary, to be honest. I mentioned earlier about the Yamaha, and it really had a bit of a lag in the throttle. The Honda had great carburetion. It was it was really connected, the throttle to the rear wheel, but it didn't turn. It didn't stop. It didn't, you know, you'd, it'd lean over but go straight ahead, you know, so it was really weird, and... um and it really had no feel whatsoever whereas the yamaha felt very similar to the the other yamaha whether it be a, a factory racing uh, four stroke or a, or a production bike it had a similar feel to it and uh, and i think today it's very similar you see the Yamaha's quite nimble and think they can do a lot of, a, a lot more than some of the other bikes in turns and the way they can get back but, but i think more so back then with the two strokes but the honda was just a scary piece of um piece of machinery and um and every year, the basically young engineers, they just have a clean sheet of paper and, and start uh, start developing again. You know, it was almost like they didn't have it, other than the other than the brain or the engine of the, the <laughs> of the machine. The rest of it was just thrown out. And uh, you know, the the '88 bike was the first one I'd tested, and that, uh, that was that was you know had a, had a great engine. It revved uh, quite high but, you know, had nothing really down low, but it just didn't turn, didn't stop, didn't do anything. So, you know, I think Gardner finished second in the championship that year, but, you know, it was pretty good to do that, I think. The 89 bike wasn't much better. Mm. I don't know where the development went on that one, but uh, having Eddie Lawson join Honda in 89 was, I think, the best thing what could have happened for the NSR. Mm. And then myself, you know, I, I think... With the experience he had, the little experience I had, but both coming from Yamaha, both saying similar things of how we'd like the bike to go, you know, that's the development for the 1990. Honda seemed to head in that direction, and as I say, at the end of 89, when we're doing a lot of development in in Japan, Lawson had had re-signed for Yamaha, so he'd gone... But that's when they started, the, the Japanese. That is started following my lead with with development because my 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 feedback was very similar to, to Eddie's and uh, and um, and really that was that was the, the I guess the bones of what ended up being that NSR for really the next decade. Things had changed the steering rate, the, the engine heights the, uh, the rigidities the, the, the whole bunch of different scenarios of the chassis side of things and also the engine but but um, you know and I think Wayne, Wayne Gardner you know he seemed to like something that would just fall over and maybe that was because um, that was what his he, that, that was the way he grew up with the bike I guess but um, he would have the engine really low And so the thing would would lean in quite easy, but it wouldn't turn with all the weight down so low. So you know, so even there in 1990, he'd run a different he'd run a different chassis than myself. I'd have the engine up higher, and also the steering head up higher. He'd have everything down lower. You know, so it'd, it'd, it'd turn in. It'd turn from left to right easy, but it actually wouldn't turn. You know, it wouldn't for me anyway. <laughs> and um, so, you know, pull it up a little bit heavier to get up and over, but once it got up and over, it'd want to turn. And then slowly had to change the steering head angle to, to help it also turn rather than be like a bit of a speedway bike where it's just up and down and didn't actually want to, when you'd lean it over the wheel, didn't actually want to turn in. So there was, you know, that was swing arm pivots with uh, the whole bunch of different... Sides of things, and then also the the the, um, the suspension, because the suspension's equally as important as the as the uh, as the chassis. So, you know, thankfully. Um you know, and I don't know whether riding T50 Proddy bikes gave me that insight into into just feedback. but I, I never tried to tried to be too technical. I'd just give the feedback of what I wanted the bike to do. You know I didn't tell them, tell them that I think we should change to this spring or you know we need to, we need to adjust that like this. It was uh, I'd be speaking with Jeremy Burgess and the, and the chassis engineers and the engine engineers just telling them what I'd like, you know, and, and what it's not doing, you know, and, and again just not complicating the the process, and I think that was, for them, quite easy to understand, you know, instead of somebody coming in and saying, we need two clicks of preload here, we need to change the oil level, we need to, you know, change the material here, it's like, what, you know, we're the engineers, so I think just that basic understanding, and, and also JB then be able to to dilute that down even further and... and And give it into into to the engineers into something they could then digest and take back and and develop. So, you know, so the the bike um, between there and the mid 90s developed in a in a much more user friendly rider bike, which then became the NSR, which then everyone decided they 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 need to ride. But there was still only one winning. (laughs) <laughs> and that was, you know, I think mainly because I was the one developing it was built for me. So everyone really
1: was riding my bike. <laughs> the The work with JB, I want to, want to get to that. I've spoken to him earlier in this this podcast series. He describes you as one of the most determined um, people that you know he's ever ever met. Really, it looked like from the outside looking in, that you guys really complemented each other's strong points, and he wasn't just someone who understood the bike he understood the rider too didn't he
0: and that's that was his strength you know and still would be today if he was there but um, I think I mentioned it just a moment ago was trying I think that's the best way is to try and not to over complicate it you know and I think that's what a lot of young guys they get lost trying to complicate it mm. you know and it's pretty basic you know if you're driving your car you know, you've done a bit of racing and whatever, but if you're driving your car down the road and you feel the the wheel sort of wobbling around a little bit, you know, you know, you'll get out and okay, the, the nuts are off it. That's pretty easy. Otherwise, you go into the into the into the, <laughs> the workshop and tell them what it's doing. The wheels ro- <laughs> feels like the wheels wobbling around, and they'll find it. So that was really the same sort of thing as what I'm doing. You know, Let's, well, it's not doing this, and it feels like that. You know, and I think that was just easy and being honest. And there was still data back then, very very primitive. Compared to what it is these days, but still enough data that they could recognise whether you're full of full of shit or not. And mm. and, and but JB was equally, you know, he, he'd get onto that straight away. You come in and speak with JB. And you tell him what to do, and he, because he was a rider as well, and it was easy to understand, you know what's what's happening. He'd go back and have a bit of a think about it, and go, yeah, well, I think it's doing this, and then and then instruct, you know, the the mechanics working. There was two on each, one on each. Sorry, there was two bikes, and there was two mechanics on each bike, so one set for per bike. And um, so he'd he'd instruct the guys to to do whatever they're doing, and then he'd relay a lot of that information or hand over his sheets. To to the engineers and away we go but but he had that again he would trying to keep it as simple as possible you know he never tried to over complicate it try and re-engineer the bike a lot of engineers also they think they they've got the ideal setup, you know, they've never ridden, especially at that level. And they'll try and set the bike up for the rider, you know. So, you know, there was there was a lot of them and probably still in the paddock, just too many egos, you know. J B didn't have any ego, you know. He was confident in what he was doing. But, you know, he just he, he just had the knack of knowing what you wanted and was able to put it in there. And I think at the end of at the end, because he'd been through so different so many different scenarios, you know, over so many Grand Prix. you know, the feedback, you know, whether it was, you know, again, I can't talk for the other riders and the way they gave feedback, but the feedback I was giving him, you know, I'd say something, he'd know exactly what I meant by, you know, Are the bike's doing this, I'd like it to be doing that, you know, he'd go, okay, yeah, we've had that somewhere else, you know, he'd have a look back through his, you know, he used to, like, carry you know it was well before ipads or computers or whatever he'd <laughs> have doc- <laughs> documents from from whenever and be able to go back through and go okay we had similar sort of problems like this this is how we fixed it and and was able to get on on top of it but i mean that was his strength not not having an ego not thinking that he knew better than the than the than the rider and uh, and not believing that, you know, he, he's, he's a be all end all and you're going to ride my bike, you know, which, uh, as I say, a few of these guys out there think that, you know, it's it's my bike, you'll ride it, you know, you're only the guy that's paid to ride the thing.
1: <laughs> Mark Marquez still largely has made the same group of people that have been with him since the early days in, in Moto3. That team, you were big on forming that team as well. And I guess did that really start with with JB coming across in sort of 1990 and that core group of guys that really were... were uh, instrumental in the background in your career, weren't?
0: They? Yeah, absolutely. Um, JB was 89. The first season I went in, um, you know, I had the, I had the um, um, opportunity or, or the option to run uh, Yatsushiro, who was Gardner's teammate in '88, who I'd replaced in '89. Uh, uh, Dave Cullen or Radar, they used to call him. He was he was their first choice, but Gardner didn't uh, didn't keep uh, JB after '88. You know, for for whatever reason he took another guy, Stuart Shenton. So, you know, they said, you know, which one do you want? Do you want JB or, 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 or Radar? And I said, well, why can't I have them both, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and then there was a couple of other guys um, in the team there as well. And um, and and pretty much Radar left the end of 89. Um, I can't remember whether he, uh, he, he went to one of the other teams or not, but... Um, But pretty much from there on in, there was the same core core people all the way through, and and um, you know they were there for a number of years, and you know while Rossi remained at Honda, it was pretty much the same group of people. With him, which are my old guys, and you know, I'd said to Honda, this you know at that point in time I was working closely with Honda, and I knew that he was thinking of leaving. Um, you better sign these guys up, JB and the uh, the other guys, um, because you know he'll he'll take them with him, and uh, you know that was their response. Their response was, "We know racing," and I thought, "Oh, really?" So that was that was start of the finish for me <laughs> with Honda as well, because obviously I can't have any input any longer. Because they rotate the people around in Honda that often anyway, so so my role had changed after a few years. But, but you know, I knew that was going to be the case because that was what I was going to do every time I was thinking of leaving <laughs> to go somewhere else. <laughs> so and and that's what. Um, you know, Rossi did when he when he he left Honda, and even when he's left uh, Yamaha, and then back. to... <laughs> so, but um, so you know, for Mark and for all these guys, having that people you can trust and rely on, and you don't have to build those relationships back up. Mm. You know, the only the you know the office has changed. You know, the environment doesn't need to change, and I think that's just easier for all these guys to to just evolve and keep keep progressing forward.
1: I want to digress for one quick second here and have a, a little bit of a laugh for a, for a moment. The inter conglomerate. You don't need to know the details of our operations. <laughs> Rip a bunch of blokes. I reckon Darrell Beattie told me a yarn once about uh, coming around Corporate Hill and they may have been new, drinking a beer and enjoying the the racing. They were a lot of fun, successful guys, but did they play an important part in the, in the background and in, in helping you along the way as well? It wasn't just all fun?
0: No, absolutely. That was... Um Back, go back a, a few steps about when I was um, going from production bikes. So from that Suzuki 250, um, you know, I fell out with the the dealer who had that uh, who given it giving that bike to me so and then the, the next ride was these guys which were team camo which turned into inter um, but uh, and there were three guys um, uh, or four guys in fact and then I was a fifth but uh, riding uh, Yamaha RZ R- 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 RZ R- 2- uh, 500 and um so they were just a bunch of you know happy guys out of Brisbane really and, and they were financially supporting me which was fantastic. So and then once I'd moved on it was team camo so camouflage would be well before it was in fashion you know'd <laughs> uh, ride with this bike painted up in camouflage and, and I'd have a camouflage suit over my leather suit which was flapping around and just to try and gain a bit of attention it worked but also winning helped <laughs> and, uh, um, and then once I'd moved on, um, started racing internationally and um and um, you know, with both Yamaha and then Honda, you know, basically, they you know, these guys didn't mind a beer, and I was going international, so into swill, <laughs> you know, like I say, they didn't, they didn't, um, unfortunately, they didn't decide to then uh, uh, start backing another young guy, but you know, they they loved racing, but they didn't know anybody in racing, so uh, Michael Dowson, who was who was my teammate in '88, but I didn't, um, this is well before that, but he'd, he'd um, suggested that they. Contact me you know, because he thought I was, a, a, you know, a good prospect for. For a young guy coming through that, you know, perhaps wouldn't cost him too much money. So, you know, so it was a a good story. But, you know, I'm still in touch with the majority of those guys today.
1: In 92, you're leading the series by, you know, what's now become MotoGP, the 500cc World Championship, by 60 points. More than that, in fact. And you crash in in practice doing some pretty serious damage to your right leg. Uh, You shared this with me recently. It came very, very close to amputation, didn't
0: they? Yeah, absolutely. You know, initially I didn't, um, I didn't know how how close. In fact, but um, twenty four hours, was it was almost that close, wasn't it? I, I believe so. But um, you know, the problem with the with the leg, um, I, I think it all happened during the surgery. But you know, the the trauma from the uh, the injury, and the swelling, they didn't they didn't. Um, they didn't allow for the swelling and closed closed all the leak uh, back up after inserting some plates and screws and and didn't allow for some swelling and then put it basically in a cast and then raised uh, um, raised it up in the air so it didn't have anywhere to swell so essentially it uh, all the swelling then um, went back in and shut the veins down so which you know they is is a known. A known, I guess, byproduct of these type of injuries, lower limb injuries, and, and maybe other limbs—I'm not sure—but compartment syndrome. So, but you know, Dr. Costa, the one who ended up saving my leg, um, knew exactly what was going to happen because he could see also through the surgery the way they'd before they closed me back up, they hadn't done the the right things in his mind. Again, I'm not a surgeon, so I don't really know, and haven't really bothered to look into the exact details. But, um, but. Um, he knew that um, something was going fairly bad, so he kept checking on me. He'd been thrown out of... He got thrown out of the, the surgery during the the, uh, the actual procedure when he got concerned there. And then the next day when he came come and see me, the concerns were being realised for him, what, what he had. Then he was kicked out when he went and tried to find some doctors to try and get them to uh, address the situation. He was thrown out of the hospital again. Anyway, long and short, apparently he'd told Costa that... Um, because Costa had gone back to, to Italy, but he had concerned about um, my leg, and uh, apparently this doctor had said to Doctor Costa that had uh, you know you may not have to worry about it any longer because if it's if it if there's no improvement in the next 24 hour, I'm going to have to amputate his, his leg. So that's um, thankfully Costa organised a a, a, medi, a medical aircraft to come and get me out of there and uh, and also picked up Kevin Schwantz at the time. It was a fairly fairly weird weekend. There was a lot of crashing happening that weekend, but, but, um, but Schwantz had at least dislocated his hip. He may have done some more um, more damage, And um, but he'd asked this same doctor for some medication. The, the doctor was reluctant to give him any medication to ease the pain because it was self-inflicted injuries. He's got better things to do than look after look after people that put themselves in that position and taking up his time, you know. So, you know, so I took, essentially took myself and, um, and Schwantz back down to Bologna and then really sort of set about uh, um, saving my leg, you know, so that was... You know, even at that time, I didn't really know the position I was in until you know he was frantically trying to work. I mean, number one, apparently my my blood was that thin; it was it was like water. So he needed to sort of address that because he was concerned about my internal organs, and then um, and then get on to trying to get some blood flow and oxygen back into the leg, and then and then uh, and then go from there. So it was a fairly a fairly. Um, eye-opening experience for the next sort of 10 days really of everything what was going on and you know not understanding any Italian and you know shit flying everywhere and arms flying and people coming rushing in with you know digging out bits of flesh and needles flying everywhere it was you know pretty pretty good but you know i've got to be very very thankful for costa for for taking that time and interest in me to to save uh, to save my leg and um you know because it could have gone the other way so so easy that's
1: definitely it was unique what he did in terms of plastering the the legs together and, and you know helping from one from the goodness from one to help i guess the the other but but how close did you think, you know, this is game over, or did you think, did you think, you know, I'm going to stop now, or did that never enter your mind? And this is before you'd even won the first of your world championships.
0: Yeah, no, I, I was leading the championship that year, so, you know, I, I knew that by that time I well and truly knew that I was capable of riding the bikes, and um, it never entered my, my mind even at that point in time, you know, uh, that... You know there's 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 gaping holes in my in my leg i could see the bone i could see where the plates and screws had put in and you know waiting for waiting for flesh to grow back before they could then place uh, grafts and so on across them so it um but you know the desire was always to get back on the bike and compete so it uh, was it, it was you know there wasn't a question mark in my mind
1: this is greg rust and you're listening to rusty's garage more with Mick Dewin in a moment In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate riders, drivers, designers and collectors I know. It mightn't look like it, but at times, mad Mike Wadette is actually looking for perfection when he drifts his fire-breathing rotary-powered Mazdas, and this global superstar seems to catch the uncatchable slide. That's really about just making that car an extension of your body, and then once you've once you've got that, it's like you can almost just place the car and throw it as hard as you can and you, you find the absolute extremes. And as a driver, I think what's the scariest part is the technology is progressing faster than the drivers. Like, it's seriously scary to drive these cars these days with, with drifting as much as it looks like that we want the cars to be slippery so we can slide around the track. We're actually trying to get as much grip as possible. Listen to the full episode with Mad Mike here on Rusty's Garage. Panel vans, a hybrid between a van and a car, popular in the 1970s. Famous for its ability to easily store surfboards, camping gear and also where most 1980s babies were made. Necessity is the mother of invention. You, uh, the, the boys, uh, and you come up with a with a system to help because the the right ankle wasn't really then up to the rigors of, of braking, wasn't it? And you came up with a little hand based system for, for rear braking.
0: No, that's right. The my right ankle, you know, the, the injury, the 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 um, uh, the, the brake was very low uh, down near my ankle, and. Um, because of all the, uh, the the tissue and nerve damage after this compartment syndrome I'd lost uh, I'd functionally lost the, the ability to use my right ankle and it's it, it's, it's now functionally fused it's not um, physically fused but but I lost the ability to use my um, my ankle so so the the brake is situated everybody who rides a motorcycle now on the right foot and you know especially with the two strokes they didn't have any engine braking and um and it's you know a rear brake's quite important especially in the wet but also to balance the bike and into turns and help it turn as well so so um you know on the first few rides back in 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 92 it was quite daunting especially um, you know in the wet <laughs> with only a front brake, you know one leg essentially because i couldn't feel the leg and it was only just just hanging in there even though i had it it wasn't much of a leg um so it wasn't until the beginning of um the beginning of 89 um uh, sorry the beginning of 93 um during testing that um that um you know we're trying to work out how can i where can i adapt a, a rear brake to try and make it work can i use maybe try and use a bit of a heel something to try and work it that way but that was that wasn't going to be able to work and um, um then started thinking about a rear brake on the on the on the handlebar so i used um um like a little lever above above a um just above the clutch, so like I said earlier, you use the clutch mainly, it's, it's the old traction control now they've got all traction control but the clutch was was traction control so you needed to have a finger on the clutch all the time and um, you know, so it's, it's pretty hard to independently use two fingers the brake and, and the clutch so at Suzuka, the first race of the season was the first time I would really got to test, test it out and especially it's still a conscious decision having to be able to, to use the brake you know rather than on my foot and um and up through the the s curves at the back of uh, at the back of the pits of suzuka you know you're you wanting to have the clutch because in case it spins up but equally you want a bit of break helping turn it into into the turn so i worked out real quick that you know this is this is it's a joke and it's not working at all and i i um I, uh, I rode around with the rest of the Grand Prix and working out what could I do and how hard am I actually hanging onto this bike and worked out that um, you know perhaps I can use my thumbs. So I rode around for about half of the race with my, my, my thumb hanging off the, the left handlebar and um, um, and then you know you, you said like a nudge bar. I came in from that race and I sort of mentioned that well that was a waste of time that little lever that we had there to use in as a brake but maybe we can use like a, an ATV throttle application or a jet ski throttle application but on the opposite side and use that as a thumb brake and uh, so the, the Honda engineers came up, they they uh, designed a, a, a master cylinder for the, for the left handlebar and they built the caliper as well to just get the ratios right and from there on in I was on the podium the next weekend it was a very basic system and and uh worked well some people still use it today and brembo actually offer it um now as a as a as a product but because um, a lot of people used to have trouble you know in right turns and so on um uh getting their foot on the braking even today you see people with their foot hanging off it you know because <laughs> they're they're helping balance the weight of the bike these days so so the rear brake on the handlebar sort of helps but um you know, it's, uh, it was one of those things. It was a necessity. It's a bit like if you're right-handed and you lose your right hand, you will soon start to start to use your left hand pretty good. <laughs> so it wasn't long before I adapted the use of that. And, and as um, you know, with that, I equally had to take the rear brake off. Um, off, off, the, off the foot because it, if I move forward, my foot moves forward and so I'd be standing on the rear brake. So that was also an issue in those early races where, where I didn't have a rear brake. I couldn't use it, but I still had to have it on there. You know, equally, uh, I think in 1993, Daryl Beattie and I rode the Suzuka 8-hour and uh, we had to have a little device on the rear, rear brake that could detach the, the actual lever. And then put it back on for him. <laughs> so so he'd had both the rear brake on the wow. foot and the, and, the, and the handlebar. So so it was a you know it was a necessity, but it worked well. And as I say, it's still in use today.
1: How much did that first world title ultimately mean, given everything that you'd been through to, to get that first one, and it would be the first of five straight? How satisfying was that?
0: It, it was. It was a relief, you know, um, because I had been close in '91. Um, And then 92, with what happened, um, it was a, um, you know, a bit of a disaster. I'd been leading, had such a good lead, and then things fell over. Um, You know, being being my leg, nearly losing that. 93 was a recovery year, pretty much riding the majority of the year with a broken leg. And then... um, and then 94, you know, so until it was actually secured uh, across the line and the championship was actually uh, in my pocket, you know, I always, I never really thought, you know, that it was a, a done deal. So, but uh, the relief that, you know, I'd finally reached what I joined the, 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 Moto GP four had, had been achieved it was great, but then the work began because I'd always said if I'd won one, I wanted to win two, and I wanted to win them back to back just so there wasn't any luck involved. It's pretty hard to, to get lucky twice, especially in two years in a row. So, so I put myself under a bit of pressure and made quite a number of mistakes early on in '95. trying to trying to trying to actually. Uh, do that. Thankfully, I did, but I mean, I had to get my head back straight for a little while after the
1: first few. The the dominance of 97 was remarkable. mate, 12 of the 15 races you win. You've kept a bike from each of the years of your your world title success, which I would imagine was was difficult in itself to convince the Japanese to do that. Is the 97 the bike for you, or is is there you know is there one that you've got a really close affinity with for a particular reason?
0: Look, ninety-seven without a doubt. I think is is um, just due to the fact. I think it was it was a it was a little bit different in the firing order than the rest of the Hondas, um, and that was only for for uh, the mentally trying to mess with the other rider's head more than anything else. Um, but you know, it, it had good good short, short sharp power, so it was exciting to ride and um, didn't have any d- power difference than the other Hondas on the grid just the way the, um, the engine worked but it was a good combination you know it was a little bit detuned from the 96 the chassis improvements worked well um, it just everything worked well you know I was on top of my game so so certainly, 97 was was the um, you know the, the, the best bike that probably I'd ridden up until that time, and then 98 um, it went to full unleaded fuel. So it was a it was a it was probably the worst one I'd. Uh, it still it rode well, but it just had no power compared to any, anything I'd
1: ridden prior to that. You mentioned mind games there before. Is that something that came naturally to you? And and it's when you look at Valentino Rossi now and the, and the key guys, it's an important part. Of the success of the game, isn't it?
0: Well, I think it is.
1: Um, you know, I think
0: in the sport, in any sport, it is. And um, you know, uh, how did it come about? I'm not sure. I think the more determined you get, the more the more you focus in on what you're trying to achieve, you just pick up on little things. So, so it is. You know, more practice working out. That you do little things that perhaps upset people, but <laughs> you know, and then you you know um, you 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 continue to play on that. But and conversely that's why I never tried to let anybody know where I was because you know once you let somebody know what's upsetting you or or making you happy you know you've got something to work with and uh, so you know so I was pretty much poker face the whole time just so that nobody had any way of getting to me and uh, but equally I'd I'd, uh, use that to my advantage playing with them so.
1: Crash in damp conditions in in 99 would would ultimately um, bring an end to to an incredible Career, mate. You've got a funny story about being thrown off the bike mid-air, and I think seeing a journo <laughs> crash as well is that, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, well,
0: I didn't see him. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I, I don't know whether I was passed out, but I certainly wasn't in a in a position to be able to do much or focus on too much. But um, but now I'm told, and it, and um, that while I'm going through the air, well, when I did crash, it the final crash in 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 uh, in '99 in Spain. Um, I it would touched the white line with the rear wheel fairly quickly in a in a spot you normally uh you don't don't crash. I'd just gone between two turns and I, I don't know whether it was one, two, three, four, between four and five in in ref and um and so there's no there's no protection on the walls but i just touched the wide line before turning back to go through turn five i guess it is and the back wheel hit it and it flicked me off that quick and normally when you crash you sort of you're trying to save it and then it sort of all happens so it happens quite slow this just flicked me that quick it was like hitting a, a sheet of ice and you know I'm upside down, looking down, and it's like, oh shit, I'm off this thing. You know that was, um, and then from there I, mean, I don't remember too much, to be honest. You know that was the last recollection I had. And then, um, but I landed feet first into the gravel, so that was what done some lami- damage to my my left leg. And because my right ankle doesn't move, that's really what all the, was the load got transferred from, through from my my ankle, straight through to the knee, and just overextended that and blew that apart. And then. And then that springboarded me into the end of the wall and um, at the same time there's a perimeter road on each side of that circuit and uh, apparently a journalist on a scooter was running around to, to either watch or take some photographs or whatever and he's, he's focused on me going through the air and hitting walls and um, and roads straight into it with, with you know the bikes going one way his he's, he's head's at 90 degree angle the other way and he's gone straight into it like a lamppost <laughs> you know even if it was only 20k but apparently he's, he's done himself some, some good Damage without a helmet on, so there's a team of a team of guys working on him and a team of guys working on me on the other side of the fence, track side. So, you know, but um, it, it's quite. I, I don't think he actually really hurt himself, but I mean, it's still quite a, 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 a funny story when when I heard it uh, a few weeks after.
1: <laughs> you went to, I think, San Francisco. Just just explain how that injury brought a, an end ultimately to it, and and how you felt because you were determined to come back in, in 2000 and, and from a, a sport point of view we would have ultimately loved to have seen mcdoin and the emerging valentino rossi compete against one another that would have been huge mate and sadly that that wasn't to be
0: no that's right but you know he, he was going to be my teammate in 2000 um you know in a team that i was putting together with that honda um supporting it um so it would have been a, a a satellite team with factory equipment so then you know when when i wasn't able to actually compete that's when honda started to get a bit uh, a bit concerned that i was going to run a team with their their equipment alongside them a bit like kenny roberts was doing with yamaha back in the day so um anyway but um how did the injury
1: bring a stop to it and they tried some quite revolutionary things didn't
0: they that's right so um you know, that I, I, when I got to, to San Francisco, so I, lo- I left Spain straight away to get out of there to go to the the US, and I was in the Stanford area in in, in Northern California. And the surgeons, I had so I had some some injuries, some some upper body, upper limb, arm, arm and shoulder injuries as well. So and so I had the doctors working there. I had doctors working on the lower limbs. and uh, Had cadaver grafts put in the left uh, the left knee. Um, and the right, the right knee, which was the tibial plateau, was broken into three, and just below that, it was palpitated into about 17 pieces. And um, they'd offered to use this bone substance. I don't know what it was called, but they'd only used it in things like the heel or some other really um, smaller areas but um, with, with still a bit of load-bearing, but not as much as what the, what the knee had. And they thought it may work in there, and they, if, if I was game, they were game. So I said, why not? And, um, you know, unfortunately, you couldn't really see the um, on an X-ray Um you know, with this, with this bone glue in there, everything just looked white like this table. So they couldn't see if, there was, if it was healed or if it's healing or it just looked really solid. And especially with the plates and screws that they had in there as well, they thought, no problem, you can start going again and um, start start uh, weight bearing on that leg and um, and start training and getting yourself ready. You know, I had intended to come back for, for Phillip Island at the end of the year. And, um, you know, things were going okay for the first few days, but then, you know, then the, some of the screws started to break and um, then the leg collapsed, so, so it, it, it just basically fell over. And then, um, so at that point in time, I knew I'd have to um, uh, rebuild the leg and, and put this um, Ilazarov um, external fixator back on, which I'd had earlier in, in my career, to, to one, straighten the leg and then grow the, uh, to, to get the length back in it. But, you know, um, you know the, the, the nice job that they'd put doing the tibial plateau, everything, you know, was now screwed up. It, it remains the same today, but, but this, um, this external um, fixator device uh, put my leg back together. But, but, but with that, it was now going to be August the following year before my leg was going to be strong enough to, uh, to compete. Um, so then, two thousand and one would be the next year I was going to be able to run for a championship. So that's when I decided that you know it's, it may be a good time to just retire now. You know, I've had a good run. I did 10, 10 years, five world titles, and it's time to just you know hang up hang up the boots, so to speak. So so um, you know, on reflection, it was also a good way to leave the sport because you know um, I got uh, with with what happened with uh, Valentino and Honda. You know, I got put into a position of general manager of racing for HRC, uh, and started doing a little, a few things with Dawna, and so that that gave me a focus away from away from just the competition, and so by the time I was, you know, the end of 2000, I was, you know, I, I could ride, but you know, I was a, a, almost already the mindset had shifted into to working with the team and doing a few other things. So by the time I was physically capable of competing, I was over it. So, you know, it would have been good to park the bike rather than crash it and leave the track in an ambulance. But I mean, in hindsight, it was actually probably a good way to
1: retire because otherwise I might, might still be out there racing with Rossi. <laughs> we would have loved that. I know no, that didn't come to pass. Most bike racers I've ever spoken to say that nothing else in life gives the same exhilaration mate was it a hard thing to stop and and in the way that you work, were you able to then challenge yourself and channel yourself into things like business to use some of the same things that had been so successful for you in racing and, and perhaps you know find a buzz in a different way?
0: You know, with, without a doubt, it's you know you're never going to find anything um, similar to the racing, but but um and you you know you're fully immersed into it. You know nothing else matters in, in life. You know you're a fairly selfish type type of person in in any sport. I think at that level that's that's you live, eat and breathe breathe the competition. So um, you know and they're, they're quite exciting bikes to do, but equally you know there's a lot of other things that give you excitement in life and doing deals and and uh, the downside of a deal going bad isn't as painful but it's just as uh, just as disappointing you know and and doing something to, um outside of the sport um that you know you've set set your mind to and achieve those goals is also quite rewarding so you know i think you, you know that was one stage of my life i'm now in another stage you know who knows what happens in a, in, in a, in a bunch of years time but but the but the tools were i guess took me to those world titles or, or took me through sport i've tried to apply to to life after sport and and, and you know the same commitment the same dedication and persistence are the things that uh, that i still use and also try and continually work with with trusted people you know and and, and listen and learn from from External advisors, rather than think that I'm the be-all and end-all. You know, I'm confident, but I'm, <laughs> but I still can learn a lot. And equally, when I was racing, you know, I'd never sit there and think that I, I can't learn and can't do anything. So, and I think you need to. So, so to answer your question, yeah, I've used a lot of those same skills to to move into a different aspect of my life.
1: Did you contemplate car racing? Because I I reckon I can recall going to Norwell to Paul Morris's driver training complex, and you doing a promotional thing where you drove a supercar. His supercar, you drove a Formula One car at one point. Did you seriously contemplate that or, or never really?
0: No, not really. Like McLaren used to offer me to drive their car quite often. I was never really interested. I drove the F1 car uh, when it was Winfield. I had sponsorship from the tobacco uh, company as well, and then there was Pall Mall as well. Um, which was the same company, there was Tommy Mackin and Jack Villeneuve and myself were all sponsored all world championships that year all world champions that year so we did a, um, we did a bit of a demonstration, that was all <laughs> and you know, both Tommy and myself demonstrated how to crash them as well so, but um, but really, um, you know it was at the end of the, it was a uh, race, it was it was some point anyway so, you know, once I'd spun on the out lap and, um, and Tommy did as well but then he, he Went on and then totaled it, <laughs> but uh, I didn't do that. But I, I only did did half a dozen laps in the car, and then um, and then about bloody three hours of press interviews. You know? So it was more of a press event, and then most of those type of F1 invites were all about just the media, and, and still are today, all about the media coverage that the teams can get for themselves in the off seasons or whatever. But car racing again, if I if I if I wanted to go racing. Get back into racing. I'd go back two wheels because that's you know what I loved and what I wanted to do. And and no matter how good you are in a car, you know if you're a couple of tenths off, you know you're still a couple of tenths off, and if you're still a couple of tenths off. And if if you're um, if you're um, um, you know well no well, a couple of tenths over say 30 60 laps is, is a long way away so you know and you know you're never going to pick up that race craft what all these drivers these days have learnt all the way through karting and the experience so you know why waste your time trying to you know and I know losing wouldn't wouldn't sit well and and, and, and frustration so there's not too many bike guys who have transitioned to full time car racing yeah the odd odd racing you do okay and the race that champions, you know, I've done with Jamie Winkup and and a few other guys, you know, I've all been good fun and I've won a couple of races, but, you know, good 60 second races, <laughs> it's hard to get too far behind, you know, but, uh, or oh, a little bit of go-karting you know, we've done in the past, but so I, I enjoy that side of it, but I mean, car racing's never been my thing.
1: During your career, I've seen both sides of McDoing with the with the press, and I've seen you mellow in, in, in later years, did you have a tough time with them did you just prefer to kind of uh, block it out and focus on the racing during the, the height of your career how did you find dealing with them yeah yeah, yeah.
0: I, I didn't uh, didn't find it that enjoyable just because of the amount of garbage that <laughs> quite often they'd write so then i got into a position where i could i could probably with with Honda and with the sponsors that they they'd prefer that I uh, you know do to certain segments and others that I could avoid so so i I, I played on that as much as possible to minimize the amount of um, press that I needed to do and, and you know and it wasn't it, it was more certain segments of the press more so you know a lot of it was all you know, I couldn't be bothered being the tabloid superstar, you know, so, and, um, and I couldn't understand why all that is, uh, what the interest was about, but but I mean, you also recognise the press is an important part of the, the sport, but... But you know, the focus for me was more on racing than it was on, on wanting to be a media superstar.
1: <laughs> were you aware of the stuff that they were writing, though, or you just tried to block all that out?
0: Of course, you know, you, you're told about it, it um, and you do read some of it, um, but it, quite often you just flick through it, you know, and then um, and you just you know you, you'd make a note of who it was, <laughs> and you you. You tend not to speak with them too too often if you didn't have to, but but as I say, today's it a little bit different than than back then, um, and there's a lot more social media, a lot more activations going on everywhere. So it's you know to try and do what I was doing or, or even people in F one were doing at that time is, is near impossible. So you know they were the they were the best of the both worlds back then. You could you get away with doing enough but without being overloaded with media, which you know, it almost is today. You know,
1: are you uh, it's. It's probably difficult to nominate one rival. There were some great rivals um, along the way. Did those rivalries motivate you, and is there a a standout for you?
0: Yeah, look, without a doubt, um, you know, it has to motivate you. And, um, and, you know, you'd have... You know, each year there was always somebody different. In the early days, you know, Rainey was a consistent punter, you know. We spoke um, at the beginning of this about the different guys, about Rainey, you know, Schwantz, Lawson, etc., etc., you know, super fast, super good, but Rainey was the one. Lawson was sort of towards the end of his career and then he jumped on a Kajiva, wasn't really that competitive. The Rainey was the one who was consistent. Consistent was a guy that, you know, wasn't always the fastest guy, but, you know, come Sunday, he, you know, he was a guy you had to race. So, so they were the guys that you focus on and, and try and how am I going to beat this guy? You know, I've got to be consistent like him. Lawson equally consistent, but as I say, on the, on the latter part of his career, Um, And then things changed, um, you know, rivals or or competitors, I should say. change every year. You don't know who's coming through, who's going to be the next guy, you know guy wasn't doing so much, so well the year before, you know, especially as I say back in those days, the bikes were fairly difficult to get a, get your head around so you couldn't just jump on them and there was very few if any that just jumped on them and went quick, you know um, you know, it took a while for them to get a bit tamer that people would do that you know, people come through from super bikes and they'd go back to super bike after a year because, so, you know, they could win there and they couldn't do it and they didn't, you know, they didn't want to Hang around there any longer, people would get a guest ride. You know the likes of the Foggeties and and um, and other superbike riders of high note, and then they'd you know oh we don't want that, and they'd hand the bike back. You know, <laughs> so so um, you know so and that's where I say people coming up. You know you never know from the year before some people who are sort of somebody you weren't really didn't have them on the horizon all of a sudden you go testing and shit, these guys are pretty quick so but you use that to, to keep pushing yourself to want to keep improving and keeping ahead of them so I always knew that regardless who my competitor was us was competing against at the time I need to prepare myself as best as possible and you keep pushing yourself higher and harder every every year so got to the point where you know you don't need to be competing um, that you know pushing yourself that much and and training that much and, and physically beating yourself up that much you know it's um to do it but that's what the the, 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 the headspace you needed to be in to compete against these guys but which you know competitors and talk about Beatty you know Beatty is a bit of a shame that he injured himself when he got out of the sport because without a doubt you know he, he could have been you know for me he was the most naturally gifted guy that I'd raced against at um And, um, you know, he could have gone on and and been massively successful. Um, But unfortunately, again, you know, we've spoken about it previously about luck. I think a bit of luck and timing and everything falls into place. But, you know, he certainly could ride anything and could ride it well. But unfortunately just you know um, retired maybe 26, 27, you know but he could have he could have
1: hung in there for another 10 years talking about Daryl <coughs> Beattie there a colleague and, and friend Alex crevilles probably another one what about when the threats from within mate when you've got a teammate and and the the rivalry's pretty intense within the within the garage
0: yeah you know I, I it never really concerned me you know you know from from the outset to be honest even with you know when I was very green jumping on the bike in uh, in, in 89 against um, uh, Rainy, not Rainy, um, um, Lawson and, and Gardner, you know, I still had to beat them. So, you know, so that was again go, going back and working on myself. How am I going to do this? So, you know, and wanting to get, wanting, again, going a little bit back backstepping a bit to the old poker face, you know, trying to get as much information out of somebody without letting them know that I'm getting a lot of information out of them <laughs> and and using that to my advantage. And um, and equally, you know, as as my career went on, and you'd have the people like the Alex Trevilles and, and whatever which are u- utilising all my data and all my information and, and whatever else, Trying to work that to my advantage as well, and and trying to mess with them more mentally than anything else. But I never ever felt that um, you know my com my my teammate or one of my competitors was was quicker than or, or could beat me. You know, mentally, I never, I never, I, I guess, gave up that 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 belief that I was better than them.
1: You've moved on um, in in life terms now. The the um the corporate jet, the corporate aviation business. Like I guess, the love for flying kind of commenced in the latter part of your your career in some respects, and it's become a big thing, mate. From from charter to sales to fuel, all sorts of things, hasn't it? No,
0: that's right. You know, so that's one aspect of the. Of, of of um, the business these days um, is most visible, um, but but the I I bought an aircraft uh, when I was competing in the nineties, um, really to get myself around. Flying throughout Europe wasn't easy back then. It's not easy today, but uh, but equally I could do uh, appearances in the UK. I could do and then be back down in Paris and then back down in, in the south of France all in a day, and all go testing and then be back home in the afternoon. So it, you know was a time machine, so it would free me up and keep me focused and, and prepare me better for the next time I needed to go riding. And, and, um, and equally, today, there's people doing the same thing, you know, and, and people who don't, I think are the poorer for it and, and uh, you know the people flying the aircraft are probably poorer for that but I mean <laughs> but but physically and mentally the guys who aren't you know investing in, in, into their time and preparation are the guys who who aren't really at the forefront of it so um, but but really um, I got into flying once I stopped competing um, and got into that side of it as a, as a hobby more than anything but then um then, then, again, when, when I stopped competing, having the aircraft was great and it was a luxury rather than a necessity. And, but I quite liked that luxury, but, you know, it couldn't, un, couldn't, couldn't justify the costs. So, so that was when um, I set about uh, perhaps uh, starting a very small um, charter group to just offset some of the costs and and from there it's just uh, you know the ripple effect is growing into into the property side which fbos or or private terminals, fixed base operations, of which we have one here in in Melbourne at Essendon, the business um, Platinum Business Aviation Centre, and one on the Gold Coast. Um, so you know, essentially, like a marina for aircraft. So we have hangers and, and aprons, and and offer handling services, fuel services, um, and then Global Global Jet International does the charter and management and um, and flight planning, and uh, and that side of things. And then we've got the Jetcraft Corporation, which is. Um, of which I'm a partner in and, and Australia New Zealand Papua New Guinea the Pacific is my <laughs> is my region but um, you know we're arguably the largest traders and and resellers of aircrafts and um, globally so um so yeah, so I was growing into quite a quite a business with a number of staff, and uh, and uh, you know of which one of them is, um, is Dick Smart, who used to work for me on the and and Valentino Rossi. So he's been with me for about ten odd years in the business. So you know, and he looks after the charter um, uh, uh, the, the charter sales side of the charter sales team.
1: Amazing. Amazing. From, uh, you know, this incredible career that you've had, you've now spent a huge amount of time in the air following your son's career as well. And thankfully, maybe it's thankfully, he's gone four wheels (laughs) instead of two. Are you you happy about that? And do you sit back and, and let him walk his own path or do you try and help him through the pitfalls of motorsport?
0: Um, both, um, you know, he's, at the end of the day, he's only 15 years old as well, so, you know, he does need a father as, as, as a bit of guidance, but equally is 15 years old with that, and then um, and then, uh, and um, equally, um, I, I need to be there to to support him and and uh, and guide him through that and pack his lunch, you know. So, <laughs> but uh, but he, he, sorry. And uh, on the other side of that is I'm, I'm his dad, and he's 15, and he thinks he knows best. So you know, so it, it's it's a catch twenty um, two. I try and. You know this year I was at the majority of his races. I try and be there for the races I, I, I won't attend all the testing try and get him to understand that he needs to be there himself and prepare himself. but mentally I try and give him some advice you know which I think is you know certainly he does take on board but you know he's also got some other great mentors around him you know uh, you know friends like Mark Weber. Yeah, uh, David Coulthard. You know, unfortunately, Michael Schumacher's is not around um, to to give him that advice any longer. But you know, in the early days, sort of, you know, he, you know, a family friend, the Schumachers, and so on. And he, um, you know, he, he's very stern, and, and you know, and so at least, you know, he, he's seen other people get to the top, so he's he's got that advantage as well. But as a father, I need to step aside because you know, I never took my, you know. You don't go to work with your dad, and <laughs> if that's the way he wants to go, he needs to sort of stand up on his own two feet. They all start younger these days, but equally, uh, um, that's they, they want them to. So, you know, as come next year, two thousand and nineteen, I probably won't attend all the races. I'll still attend, you know, because I'm a, a fan of his as well. <laughs> But I'll, I'll, um, and if I'm there, I'll be more so in the background a lot more than I have been. So, you know, um, being more instrumental in in guiding his career, I'll be now standing back watching his career.
1: Am I right in saying... Michael Schumacher gave him a go kart and perhaps influenced the direction that he's gone. And and is he a chip off the old block? Is he as determined as you? He's certainly determined.
0: um, You know, when he pushes himself, he he sort of um, he certainly doesn't like losing. That's for sure. So, which is a good side of things. Um, And he, you know, and he is. is, you know, he's got that desire to want to win, which is good. Um, you know, certainly Schumacher sort of helped with providing both he and his sister a go kart when they were younger, <laughs> and uh, set him on that path. But uh, you know, that was that was really just a bit of a, a gesture than, and, a, and a bit of fun. But um, you know, but thankfully he did take up go karting rather than most motorcycle racing. But uh, you know, but he loved his rugby union and uh, and his surfing, and um, but unfortunately he chose motorsport. But
1: <laughs> Final one for you. Um, as a part of this series, I ask all the guests about a Grail machine. And you've, you know, you've been fortunate enough to own some great cars and race some brilliant motorcycles along the way. Um, is there one that you, and maybe even a plane, that you would love to own, or perhaps you do own?
0: To be honest, not a, not, not a hundred percent. I've never, I've never been a big car collector, bike collector. Um, there are some, um, there are some. Um, machine, there, are, you know, some machines that I'd like to own. You know, the Project One AMG would be an awesome uh, car to to drive and to uh, and to have in the garage. Um, you know, there there is another another manufacturer that I that I have a supercar, <laughs> but, but uh, which which is um, which which I'm taking delivery of early next year. Um, but. But again, it's it's not something that excites me really. To be honest, you know, quite often it's 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 a bit of a letdown when you when you hop in it and you drive it and you go. Going back to your earlier question, you can't relive that buzz of what you you know the pure the pure horsepower what you had when you're competing on a Grand Prix motorcycle racing. You know, no matter how good the car is or or whatever else, you you can't get that same buzz. So, so it's almost a bit of buyer's remorse when you hop in these things and you don't hang on. <laughs> for too long that, that's, that's me anyway but um, but you know that the, uh, the, the project one will be a great uh, a, a great motor car and, and I haven't seen one as yet but I'm looking forward to it
1: awesome mate it's been great to talk to you a stellar career mate 54 wins in the premier class 95 podiums and 58 poles and you've done some amazing things off track since and we wish you continued success thank you no, thanks Rusty right. cheers Rusty's Garage is recorded for podcast one written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And our sat voice is Alana Burns. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcast1.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcast1.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely.